Hello there, welcome back to Kind Mind. This is Todd. It's good to be with you again. Happy April. Spring has sprung. It was a beautiful sunny day today. And to those of you observing religious holidays recently, hope it was peaceful for you and your families. Just a few things to share with you in this intro to this episode. It was recorded just last month at Spiritual Speakeasy Community. That's an online group that meets on Sundays, and I visit every third Sunday and offer a talk and conversation. This makes a few episodes in a row that were recent talks. It just happened that way, but it's not part of a larger pattern. It all just depends on what I'm feeling like editing and listening to again. But I'll be back there this Sunday, this week, Sunday, April 16th at 10.30 a.m. Central Time. You can find details on my website on the events page. We still have Kind Mind gatherings on the last Wednesday of the month at the Homestead in Plano, Illinois. If you're a Patreon member supporting this podcast, you can join virtually as an alternative. That's patreon.com slash kindmind. If you'd like to pitch in, it's just as little as $5 a month. Then the invites are sent in advance. Members also have access to the guided meditation page on my site, and we have random short poetry chats where we look at the work of a mystic poet, and those are also on Zoom, but you can also talk with me directly and ask me anything in those intimate sessions. And so this talk today is about integrity, and was originally titled Integrity and Rediscovering Wholeness in a Fragmented World, because Our world feels very polarized and divided politically and socially, and this can spill over into our families and even within ourselves, where we can feel divided. But also because trust in our institutions seems to be at an all-time low due to violations of integrity, whether real or perceived. Let's consider a couple high-level anecdotes. Firstly, last fall, the Department of Defense essentially failed its fifth consecutive audit. The comptroller revealed that the Pentagon could not account for more than half of its assets, or 61% of its $3.5 trillion in valuation. You can find this in, in uh, any mainstream news source. Now, ordinarily, for any other business, that would be a serious red flag, right? And amount to at least mismanagement or misuse of funds and subject that entity to regulations and penalties. But I will also note here that the military is a massive organization with hundreds of billions of dollars to manage and complex operations here and abroad in a highly unpredictable global security environment. So that being said... It doesn't look good at all when you weigh this against new spending bills that significantly increased military spending in 2023 and billions more proposed for 2024 with a budget nearing $1 trillion. How can taxpayers feel confident about that when they can't tell us with any accuracy where the previous money is? So when you contrast this with the, with the context of in rising inflation, and especially with nearly 40 million Americans in poverty, 20 million being children. While many military service members and officers earn a meager salary of around $20,000, which is not a livable wage, 
yet they give their lives or agree to lay their lives on the line. So I would say, at the very least, on the surface, the integrity of these aspects of government could certainly be called into question. But again, I'm no expert on this, and welcome any other factors that I may be overlooking. Another example or area of concern is the worsening opioid epidemic. I'm sure by now, sadly, you probably know someone or are someone who has struggled with addiction or even lost someone to this battle. So looking at the role of the pharmaceutical industry and the Food and Drug Administration, you can find disturbing elements and patterns in the book Social Welfare Policy in a Changing World. The authors Lane et al., raise questions about the associations between federal regulators and interest groups in the private market that provide and profit from our healthcare. They cite this example. The FDA allowed the following statement to be placed on the label for the potent pain medication OxyContin. Quote, delayed absorption as provided by OxyContin tablets is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug, end quote. And that statement is not born out of clinical research. So they go on to add that back in 2002, when the FDA convened a panel of experts to address opioid addiction, eight out of the 10 panelists had ties to Big Pharma. The American Medical Association has struggled to develop clear conflict of interest policies about funding research, conferences, and training on drugs. While they and and other groups may argue that these relationships are inevitable or even necessary to promote scientific progress. But again, the integrity of these industries are certainly under heavy scrutiny. I also want to point out that while this relates to trust and These are similar concepts, integrity and trust. There are some important distinctions. And I've talked about trust before. If you'd like to hear more about trust, there's an episode called Testing the Timber of Trust. So integrity is more about one's own actions and behaviors, while trust is more about the expectations of those actions. Integrity is more about being accountable to oneself, while trust is about being accountable to others. And trust is often seen as a two-way street where both parties have to demonstrate trustworthy behavior in order to build trust, while integrity may be more about an individual's personal commitment to being authentic or doing the right thing. So while integrity and trust are related concepts, they do have different focuses and implications. Now, coming back to organizations, I hope that people involved in these operations or leaders in business or government will also listen to this podcast and this message. So please share it with them if you know them. And contemplate what it truly means to be a leader. This speaks also to the uniqueness of integrity. A single act or choice often cannot constitute integrity. But a single act or choice can ruin or interrupt it for sure. And unlike other virtues that may be situational or context-dependent, integrity is seen as a constant, underlying quality that inspires and threads all of our actions and decisions into a spiritual tapestry. 
This is why I retitled this talk to Integrity Unwoven. Integrity is not simply a commitment to certain core principles, but a psychosocial, structural, and creative coherence in how we live our lives. So integrity is delicate and can easily unravel and, and can also be difficult to repair. There was a question and answer session in the Speakeasy talk, and it's not included here, but I do plan to share the video of that on Patreon. And there were uh, some questions about how to repair integrity when it's lost. And I compared integrity to a mathematical proof where you may have to start over if you make a mistake or if, if one item is out of place. Alternatively, we can conceptualize it like a mosaic where what really matters is how you use each piece to build something beautiful in the end. When you look up close to an individual fragment in the mosaic, it might, it might look like anything. It might even be like a bottle cap or a piece of glass. Uh, people have made mosaics out of all kinds of things. And it might not seem to fit as an individual piece, but when you zoom out, it does. Uh, my bandmate recently told me how his lack of integrity in college and school in general motivates him to give his best to his to his work and his projects now in life. So I said, then you've integrated those past experiences and those perceived failures. And so they, they weren't in vain. So I want to emphasize that integrity is not about perfection, or at least what we might think of as perfection, or just doing good things, but rather, again, threading our experiences together in an artful way. Ultimately, as you'll hear in this talk, integrity involves maturity in steadfastly navigating the tensions, especially these days, between our personal values and all these external pressures and temptations and changing social norms. Something else that came up for me as I was editing, in the world religions that believe in reincarnation, this is a sort of refinement of the soul or an evolution of the soul through the wheel of samsara, the cycle of birth and death and suffering repeating over and over. And like the mathematical proof I mentioned earlier, if there is truth to these beliefs, each life could be like a draft of that formula. And while we might not get it quite right or fulfill our ultimate purpose, will come back again in some form with the lessons or latent impressions. In Sanskrit, these are known as samskaras. And then we try again until waking up from the cycle. In the 1993 comedy Groundhog Day, starring Bill Murray as a weatherman trapped in a wild and hilarious time loop where every morning it's February 2nd all over again. I find this theme of reincarnation and integrity sort of playing out in that film. The writer, uh, Danny Rubin, said he was contemplating mortality and how one life isn't enough time to truly change in some cases. But what if there was unlimited time? So that's what inspired the premise of the film. And some theories have circulated that the protagonist is actually in a kind of purgatory or hell, 
and and maybe died in the, the snowstorm uh, on the first day and then repeats the cycle over and over forced to confront his egotism and then phil bill murray tries to escape in a variety of ways he first he seeks professional help he starts talking to his colleagues about it and then uh, a doctor and a psychologist and when that fails he then actually tries to manipulate the situation to further fulfill his desires and exploits people and continues with his self-centeredness and personal gain at the expense of others but then he becomes morbidly depressed and tries to end his life in a variety of creative and violent ways but this still can't free him and then in the third and final act he experiments with virtue and focuses on trying to save a a sick elderly homeless man but unsuccessfully and that troubles him and disturbs him and he's also not liberated by devoting all his energy to helping someone and my intuition would be that just trying to be good is not the point. And also he was fixated on the outcome of his charity, doing it for the result that he wanted, or to feel good, or to win his way out of his situation. In David Foster Wallace's Consider the Lobster and other essays, he writes, quote, Am I a good person? Deep down, do I even really want to be a good person, or do I only want to seem like a good person, so that people, including myself, will approve of me? Is there a difference? How do I ever actually know whether I'm bullshitting myself, morally speaking? End quote. So the last day in Groundhog Day, before there's a tomorrow, uh, February 3rd, Phil gets it right. And, I mean, it's a Hollywood movie. Of course, it works out for him romantically as well. But he's more selfless, not as in morally obsessed, but as in not self-centered. Rather centered in the good of the whole. He simply lives with appreciation of the moment and responds to each circumstance with kindness, while not expecting anything in the future from it. So you get a sense, though, that he may have been trapped for many lifetimes when you see how he can play the piano expertly and ice sculpt and speak French fluently, talents that take years to cultivate, which is kind of like life, how people can only devote themselves to one or two careers or a family or a craft. So you probably didn't expect this deep dive into this goofy movie, but I enjoyed it as a kid and got something deeper from the writer and, uh, and he found a connection with this episode. Anyways, I think that's enough of an introduction. Uh, send me your questions or leave a review in Apple Podcasts. I love you all. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Integrity is typically understood to be a a human quality of having ardent moral principles and living them consistently. 
in its verb form, we have integrate, like like what we're doing today. We're bringing parts together. It's um, to render whole. Actually, the opposite of segregate. So it's powerful when you think of integrate versus segregate. But in a simple sense, personally, integrity can be said to be when one's thoughts, words, and actions are in alignment. Ordinarily, that would be important in any social context, such as work or relationships, romantic or friendships, just in order to establish trustworthiness. So when someone is not reliable or saying one thing and doing another, not fulfilling promises, making promises they they know they can't keep, or just going through the motions and not really having one's heart in it, all that is often considered a lack of integrity. But I think for this concept to really be a spiritual virtue, it has to go much deeper than that. Because if it was only about uniformity between what we think and say and do, well, that could all be dispatched in a hurtful way or with hurtful intent, right? So that probably wouldn't meet certification for true integrity. And again, coming back to some of our previous conversations, this, this does suggest that even integrity must orient to kindness or goodness to be authentic. But I don't think anybody can really say what is integrity for somebody else because we we can never truly know just by looking what those uh, three dimensions of of one uh, one's inner life are like. The other limitation here is our own cognitive dissonance, which is an evolutionary inclination to get these three elements um, straightened out, but. It can even involve deceiving ourselves. So this happens when someone changes their beliefs just to back their behavior or vice versa. So for example, let's say someone with uh, strong political convictions and views based on those positions. But then let's say that person receives a big career opportunity from someone or an organization with opposing views. So they change their stance entirely just to advance their, their status. On the other hand, don't we want our interests and, and our values to evolve as we age and mature? I mean, it would be, it would be difficult to be locked in to a, a set of values from our teenage years, let's say, and, and just have to keep maintaining that throughout our life despite better inputs. But that process is not always smooth nor linear. So from the outside, we may never truly know what integrity means for someone else. But sometimes it looks like privately questioning our own beliefs or or doubting our faith while still meeting the outer expectations until this confusion gets sorted out. So integrity is a journey. Integrity is a process. And that certainly leads to wisdom. Accordingly, integrity also involves making ethical decisions and taking responsibility for our choices with some level of transparency and the willingness to admit when there's been a mistake and do what we can to make amends whenever appropriate. I want to go a little deeper into the word itself 
because it's quite beautiful and the etymology contains, I think, more clues to its elegance. Uh, integrity is, in, is derived from Latin integritas, which means wholeness or completeness. But the root of that is integer, which also meant whole, but also untouched. And we'll come back to that definition in a second. In ancient Rome, integer was used to describe a person of pure or honest character. But we probably know from school that integer evolved to refer to a whole number in mathematics, like 1, 2, 3, 4, etc. Not 5.2, so no decimal baggage, not 5.5, no carrying fractions of the whole, so to speak. So to me, this attests to the notion of wholeheartedness, of integrity, or as Confucius said, Wherever you go, go with your whole heart. So this requires one to live unfragmented in a fragmented world by avoiding leading multiple lives within the one life. But I'm not saying that's a criticism of diverse interests. This is more like resisting hypocrisy, doublespeak, refusing to present one way and you know talking another way behind someone's back or knowingly misleading people. So it's about being authentic. But of course, it gets more subtle than this. I was thinking about a study from 10 years ago by neuroscientist Gregory Burns and his colleagues looking into integrity in the brain. The journal article is called The Price of Your Soul, Neural Evidence for the Non-Utilitarian Representation of Sacred Values. So they designed an experiment in which integrity was a proxy for sacredness. And the participants were asked to either agree or disagree with a variety of value statements to elicit what their beliefs are. But then they're offered money in exchange for signing a document that states the opposite of their selections. So basically, could they be bribed? to reject their values. And then they could keep the only copy of that document afterwards, so only their conscience would know. And you know, one other definition for the level of one's integrity is often uh, what you do when no one is watching. Anyways, the results included many who could be bribed to reject their values, and others wouldn't or but most likely there was a there was a combination of the two but with a wide range of the percentage of answers the subjects were willing to reverse but that wasn't even the true purpose of the study it's more about whenever you make either choice what happens in the brain so they follow neural pathways between selling out or standing pat utilizing functional magnetic resonance imaging. So the ones who sold their uh, integrity, they found activation in regions involved in just simply calculating utility, like a cost-benefit analysis. So basically like a self-focus. But the ones who chose integrity, the activation was in the temporal parietal junction that's associated with, with empathy and compassion, but also in the prefrontal cortex, in the areas specifically uh, pertaining to moral judgment and uh, the human intuition of 
what is right or wrong in this moment. This susceptibility to deviating from one's probity, that hints at what actually makes integrity unique, because unlike other virtues that may be situational or context-dependent, like compassion or gratitude is a response that we could have to circumstances just in any moment, but integrity is seen as an ongoing underlying force that inspires and threads everything we do, all our actions, all our decisions into what I like to think of as a spiritual tapestry. We may not even know what the final product is going to look like. So no singular act can constitute integrity, just as no single strand can be the tapestry. It's timeless. But again, what makes integrity unique is this. If one drops it, it's difficult to regain. Unlike the other virtues, I can be truly generous or courageous one time, then not, and then do it again. But integrity is much more delicate. One lie or betrayal can undo a a relationship of any kind of friendship or the public trust in a leader. Just as one fray starts unraveling the whole weave, the whole tapestry, or like a mathematical proof, if you alter one part of the formula, tamper with anything, you you get a different outcome or the proof breaks down. Or uh, like baking bread, if you do not get each amount exact or you don't put the yeast in, the bread just may not rise to the occasion. You therefore have to bring maturity into navigating these, these tensions between one's personal values and all the external pressures and social norms even. But integrity isn't about perfection. So it, it really is a, a lot more about the coherence of our lives and the, and the commitment to this spiritual quality, like walking our walk, weaving our weave, so that in the end, we ought to be able to feel like we did what we could and that even our failures fit into the final work of art because maybe this bit of darkness balances out the whole art, even if we couldn't see it at the time. So doing our part sometimes look, reminds me of this little, I think it, it's a parable from indigenous wisdom in the United States. There is a forest and, in, and then in the forest, a fire breaks out and all the animals flee. But one little hummingbird is going back and forth from the stream uh, with a little beak full of water and dropping it on the fire. And the other animals are looking back and they're mocking the hummingbird. And when pressed with questions such as, why do you uh, keep doing this? The fire's too big for you. The hummingbird responds, I'm doing what I can. I'm simply doing my part. And then this led to a chain reaction where all the other animals began realizing that if I just did my part, we could uh, transform our situation. So I want to give six warnings for the risk of losing integrity. First one is power. Uh, What's that Spider-Man quote? Uh, With great power comes great responsibility, something like that. Or power 
corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. There have been uh, social psychology studies that have shown how power is associated with corruption. Multiple experiments have suggested that elevated power, including income or one's social status, that correlates with people being apt to be more rude or to cheat. Also, the more expensive the car, the less likely the driver of that car is to stop for pedestrians. There's an article in the, the journal Psychological Review that explains why this might be, or this phenomenon. It's called power, approach, and inhibition. Something about access to power uh, has the effect of disinhibition. Anyways, the second one is fear. Our desire for self-preservation or ego defense and from a spiritual standpoint, when our ego gets hurt or inflamed and, and gives us those thoughts, our life actually shrinks. We're now in a scarcity mindset. We see ourselves as, the, as the, the particle instead of the wave, which is a, a pipeline to abundance. The third one, temptation. The lure of instant gratification or personal gain and another way to think about what could lure us in terms of like yoga or um, or meditation it's all in the lower chakras the root chakra is associated with material gain or or money so that's a temptation the second center is the sex center sex often corrupts people um, in the uh, navel center, Manipura chakra, is food, the fire uh, of digestion, so people can be tempted with food. And the heart, the heart is status, the heart is emotion, selling out our values so that we could feel good or so that we could be respected. And that continues up into the throat, which is the center of philosophy. So even the desire for knowledge can make us compromise what our true purpose is. But I'm reminded of um, a quote from a very famous Japanese swordsman, or a kensei, which was considered to be a sword saint in Japan, Miyamoto Musashi, who has a beautiful book called the Dokodo, which is 21 precepts for walking the way of aloneness. Because in the end, we come into this world alone and we leave alone. In between, we have some encounters and we ought to bring the best of ourselves to every one of those. But we'll be tempted and, and pressured in all different ways in between. And this quote from Musashi is, is so powerful for me. It's about being like a mountain. Aspire to be like Mount Fuji, with such a broad and solid foundation that the strongest earthquake cannot move you and so tall that the greatest enterprises of common men seem insignificant from your lofty perspective. With your mind as high as Mount Fuji, you can see all things clearly, and you can see all the forces that shape events, not just the things happening near to you. And the fourth one is rationalization. Our bias can convince us that our choices are justified when they're not. So I already talked a little bit about that with with cognitive dissonance. And the fifth one is pressure. Family pressure, religious pressure, cultural pressures, 
environmental pressures, the expectations around us or the, the norms, but also pain. The pressure of pain has been shown in studies to correlate with people compromising their, their core beliefs or their principles. And the last one is naivete, a lack of self-awareness. We might not be aware how our behavior compromises our integrity. And a subdivision of this, uh, this last one could include virtue signaling. In the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, you can find a study called Moral Hypocrisy, Appearing Moral to Oneself Without Being So. And the findings from this study show that people who publicly claim to value uh, certain moral principles are more likely to engage in behavior that contradicts those principles when they thought no one was, was watching. Because people who publicly espouse moral principles are motivated more in the research by the desire to be seen as moral than by a genuine adherence to those principles. Uh, so, you know, one adage, I think this is from Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching. Don't uh, explain it to people in the beginning, just show the results. Because you never know if you're actually going to be, be true to what you say. And um, also reminds me of a story of a young monk who lived with the understanding that the integrity and the, the discipline of monkhood was delicate and that strong craving or urge or temptation could sway him from his vows. So he wouldn't profess that he's a monk. He wouldn't identify publicly as a monk. And sometimes people would ask, uh, who are you or what order? And, and he wouldn't say because he didn't know how it was going to all play out. And, and in, supposedly on his deathbed in this parable, he sits up after his death and says, I was a monk. In Sanskrit, one word for integrity is achalata. And this, this word is similar to our English word in that it means immovable. Achala is unshakable. Also, it's the word for a mountain, like Arunachala. If you've ever heard of the great Indian sage of the early 20th century, Ramana Maharshi, he lived nearly his whole life on the mountain of Arunachala. It's a, it was a red mountain in southern India. And from there, the wisdom of Advaita Vedanta, or non-duality, that God, the world, and the self are really one and only appear as multiplicity, like a, like a, a holographic universe or a dream where there's other characters and other places, but it's all within the dreamer or the Lord. So achalata implies the quality of being imperturbable or unwavering in our principles. But this prefix a ostensibly is for negation, the absence of, not movable. But let's think about this deductively for a moment. The deity of Arunachala was Shiva, which represents the soul in Indian mythology, or the dissolver of ego. Our heart is that red mountain beating, beating uh, continuously, and the integrity is our true nature, not something we got to go out and acquire or prove, but something that manifests, that, that is revealed. So really, if we come back to the Latin integer and its prefix, 
we use IN in English also to stand for subtraction. Now even more fundamental is this root sound TEG or TAG, integrity with integer, with in integrity. It, it's also the root of contact. It's probably contag or contagion. That meant touch. But one with integrity is someone who's untouchable, as in incorruptible. So consider that that integrity is not something that we that we gain, but what we stand to lose. And this adventure of living out our integrity is as much about, or if not more so, about who or what we say no to. So ultimately, only you can know what or how your integrity is, because outer success is not proof of virtue. And although psychological integrity is kind of like structural integrity for a bridge, both connect two points or two people. But it's very difficult to claim there's one right thing to do in every situation or every circumstance because there is only one right now and it's unlike any other moment. You can't plan for integrity or even predict integrity. It needs to blossom in the presence of light. And this is a concept in... Um, the Chinese philosophy of Wu Wei, which is natural unnaturalness, or just simply doing the next right thing. I did want to share quickly, if I can, about two, two wise ones, two mystics, that both exemplified integrity at the time of death, in the face of intense pressure. Socrates who drank poison because he was charged with impiety and corrupting the youth of Athens by encouraging them to challenge the status quo. Because he did not fully accept the, the Greek gods, as was the custom of the time, and also introduced the idea of, of other kinds of divinity, he was sentenced to death by poison. And instead of fleeing or denying the charges, we know Socrates drank the hemlock. This is also similar to um, an Indian princess of the 16th century and mystic, Mirabai. Mirabai is a great inspiration of devotion. And in her story, the legend is a, a little bit more mysterious. Some say that she, was, she had an arranged marriage and refused to follow that institution. Or she was technically married to a prince but refused to consummate the, the marriage because her devotion to her spiritual principles and her wanting to live the life of uh, a renunciant. But unlike the Buddha, unlike Siddhartha, the prince, must have been much more difficult for a woman to, to follow her heart with the environment, with the, the social structure of the time. And so her family put so much pressure to the point where they plotted to kill her and in one version of the story of Mirabai, her brother poisons her, but Mirabai is drinking the poison, and like everything, every meal she takes or every, everything she does, she offers it to God. And so there, there's some, some magic that unfolds in the story of Mirabai. But I wanted to share a couple of her poems. The first one, I've given up all wealth, left it behind, crossing the river as one utterly poor. 
but I will not leave your door, my heart holding tight to it. I'm not afraid of the hard life that people mock me for, nor am I afraid of the king of death. I won't bend and bow to him. Mira's lord is Giridhara. Giridhara means one who holds a mountain. And it is also a, a name for Krishna. He is the destroyer of all afflictions. The lord of Mira's heart is Hari. Hari is another way of saying omnipresent divinity. The savior of the poor and the lonely. And the second one, I have given up using my own mind. I have taken the one and only as my guide. I have washed my hands of life and death. By following this path, I have arrived at home. Bliss, that unceasing fountain, springs up within. There is no need to go anywhere else. If one is in harmony with the true conductor. And the last one, the, because this is all about the discipline that can reveal our innate goodness. Our innate unity with life and with divinity. With discipline, you can pull the elephant's trunk, the snake's tail, and control the mind of the world. With discipline, you can tie up the winds, the earth, and the stars, and make them obey your command. But, with discipline, you could also conquer the senses, subdue the ego, and transcend the world. Mira says, with discipline, you can be united with God and never suffer again.